lakes and so forth when you go commune with nature. But nature is here and now, and, and Dhamma is here and now. So in Thai language, they use Dhamma for nature that's because that's, that's what it means. So everything's nature. You know, so it's, it's the way it is. <clears throat> and so, it, like, Dhamma isn't divided into, into uh, separate entities. So the self-view, the physical bodies, what we see here, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, dreams, uh, the whole, everything is is natural it arises and then the buddha emphasized that condition phenomena arises and ceases but dhamma uh, you know isn't doesn't arise and cease so it's like like the conditions are are modulations of dhamma they're you know they tend to come out of out of uh, ignorance of dhamma out of uh, our karmas, our, our conditioning, we create ourselves as separate entities. We see, our, we see ourselves as separate from nature. And uh, when we get exhausted and tired of the world, we go out and commune with nature, we look at trees and mountains, rivers and streams. But in Kamatan, in meditation, you're actually, you know, you're not going out anymore. Like the, the tendency of the sense world is to draw, draw our attention towards it. The objects of sense are natural. <clears throat> and the senses themselves are part of nature. But they, but that whole combination of the, the sense organs and the sense objects and Consciousness arises through sense, uh, through senses. When we're conscious through through the senses alone, we're always sending our attention to the objects which are impermanent, which are sankharas. So what we see, when, you know, in vipassana, in, in insight practice, we're we're observing the, the you know. We can observe that the objects of sense are impermanent, like what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. What you're thinking is impermanent. What you're feeling, your mood, your state of mind, your, your feelings of pleasure or pain, neutral feeling is impermanent. So in, in that's what mindfulness allows you know, this is the emphasis, the Buddha, this is the very essence of the Buddha's teaching because to, to realize Dhamma, the Dhamma, not just be caught in the momentum of the Dhammas that are changing and begin and end and born and die, we, we change the direction from looking outward or seeking outward objects through thinking. And even the word Dhamma can we can be looking for something when we say we take refuge in the Dhamma, like last evening's talk. I was emphasizing we're, you know, trying to figure out what the Dhamma is. And we want to define it, 
and uh, make it, you know, where is it? We'd like to objectify it in some way, <clears throat> see it and prove it through, through the senses or through the thinking mind, but you can't do it because you are that, awareness itself, mindfulness. But awareness takes us to Dhamma, which is impersonal, it's not personal anymore. The person, the separate sense of a self, personality, is based on identity, you know, your commitment to identifying with the physical body, with your emotions and thoughts and sense organs. So, you, you know, that's, that, as I was saying, Last evening, then when you do that, then you create this suffering because they're all changing. They're nothing stable, nothing, you know, they don't, they, they can't, you can't make them permanent. Sankara is their very nature, is anichang, impermanence. Tukang, unsatisfying. They're not, they'll never be satisfying or satisfactory. Anatta, they're not self. Then what is aware of sankara? This is a, this is a important question to keep reflecting upon. What can one sankara know another sankara? Can you, as a person, know sankaras? We might think you know we might claim that we know sankaras, but actually, we we. We might know about sankaras. We read the scriptures and hear various definitions of sankaras, and we understand. So, it's it's acquired information. The Buddha said all sankaras are impermanent. That's acquired knowledge. And you might think you know sankaras as a person, but when you're mindful, when there's a Sati Sampachanya, mindfulness, intuitive awareness. Then you're, you're aware of the, you know, sankaras are arising, ceasing, and they're not self, they're not personal, they're not me or you or male or female or young or old. It's not, sankaras are these identities, male, female, young and old, are sankaras that we, we believe in. You believe in, you commit yourself to them. So like in insight practices, you're challenging that, the very conditioning of your culture, of your society, of your own personal beliefs and your identities with your physical body and your memories your emotions, all that seems so very intimate and personal on one level is really, is really just sankaras changing. And that's where sati-sampatanya, or mindfulness, is a way of realizing that. It's not, it's not a judgmental thing. It's not, it's not uh, about judging right and wrong, good or bad. It's knowing this simple reality that's happening all the time, what arises, ceases. And that's not sankara. 
So then it's Dhamma. So it doesn't, Dhamma doesn't, is not a Sankara. So this emphasis on mindfulness is, you know, in the West now, here in UK or Western countries, there's tremendous interest in mindfulness. And it's, you know, it's, you can even, you know, on YouTube and that, they have all kinds of YouTube videos on mindfulness and people teaching mindfulness. Whereas, say, 20, 30 years ago, they, that wasn't happening. And yet mindfulness is, is a common enough word in English usage. But it's usually directed out, be mindful of the where you are, be mindful of the step, be mindful of the traffic and so forth. But this is, but the Buddha's taking mindfulness not, not just as through objects of sense, but through being aware of the nature of what you're actually experiencing, the mood, the, the, the state of mind, the physical body, the, the sensitivity, the vedana, the feeling of pleasure, pain, neutral feeling, of dhamma, you know, the, the fourth satipatthana, tamanu satipatthana, is, is seeing things using the dhamma language, which is impersonal. And that's like the Four Noble Truths, the dependent origination, these teachings are directional signs, you know, so they're not, they're not pointing to you as a person, or, not, you know, it's, it's about the, the realities that we believe in. I mean, the, the delusions we believe in are changing conditions, and that which is aware of change isn't changing. So nature itself, when you, when you observe, when you're still, when you're in samadhi, you know, you, there's awareness. And you're not seeking distraction. You let go of everything. So the practice of letting go of sankara is when you see the the suffering you create through attachment to them. There's consciousness, stillness, silence, peace. It's it's natural. It's not created. It's not dependent. It's always here and now. But when we send our consciousness outside to the sense objects, then we feel the momentum of those objects, whether they're, if they're good, then we feel good. If they're bad, we feel bad. If they may, they're happy, then we feel happy. If they're unhappy, then we feel that. We become victims of, of the sense world, the senses that we have in our bodies and the, and the objects, the, the world that we live in. We're caught in the what they call samsara, what the endless cycles of birth and death.
like here in the temple, Amarbati temple, it's, I always like being in this temple because it's still and quiet. And, uh, and then you think, I can only be quiet in Amarbati temple. But when I go home, there's, I can't be quiet. And <clears throat> don't believe that. I mean, that's what your, your personality might think and feel. Because you see, quiet is, is lack of stimulation of the senses. It, quiet stillness depends on lack of stimulation of the senses. And so you can, you, you know, it's easy, much more easy to sit in and calm down in, in a temple like this one than it is at home. But still, that's, you, you, you tend to attach the idea you have to be in a, that quiet stillness and peace is dependent on a time and place, on a situation. And that very thinking, that very attitude creates a sense of separation. Where awareness isn't dependent upon conditions being still and quiet and peaceful. Because the nature of consciousness is that way already. It's here and now. <coughs> Never separate. And so we uh, <clears throat> begin to reflect more and more. When, like when people, there's a retreat going on right now, weekend retreat. People will get calm and then one day they or Sunday evening they go back. And you can be aware, you have insights on retreats which are very important. But then those insights, you know, you, you connect with being in a particular controlled situation like a meditation retreat. And, and so you, you know, you're not, you can integrate that into living in London or at home in family life or at the workplace. So we naturally assume that we can only attain this level of calm and stillness and peace in, in given in a controlled environment like a meditation retreat. Well, that's the sakyaditi, that's the ego talking, you know, attaching to memories. You know, how many of you have had, you know, memories of uh, really peaceful retreats where your, your self-consciousness drops away and you, you feel peace with everything and there's no problems. And you feel, you know, this kind of inner joy. And then it changes. You can't, you can't sustain it because you still believe that it's dependent upon a situation when when conflict arises or challenges, personal challenges or conditions change, then we don't feel that way. 
So we, we have a memory of feeling that way and we want to have that memory again. We want to revive, relive that, what we remember. And it doesn't work. You Even on coming back on a retreat, you know, you can spend the whole 10 days trying to get what you remember, that you had the peace you had on a previous one where the mindfulness is aware of that. I want what I remember, trying to get something I don't have now. And the previous uh, piece on a previous retreat is, what is it right now is a memory, here and now, and a memory present in the present moment is condition changing, sankhara. Remember my after my first pantha with Lumpa Cha, I had this I had the first year I was ordained as a samanera was in Nongkai and I had a whole year um, you know, very silent meditation. And I had a lot of insight and I had very kind of powerful uh, experiences of luminosity and peace and like, you know, I thought I was enlightened. I thought, you know, this is, you know, really works for me because I, I'm enlightened now. And then through circumstances and, and through a crisis around visas and so forth that Westerners have in Thailand, uh, you know, the whole luminosity completely collapsed. And then I went back to the to the monastery trying desperately to get it back. The actual experience itself was I had no memory of such an experience. It was completely came on its own. It wasn't I wasn't trying to get it. I wasn't I had no image or memory or you know, it surprised me when it happened. And of course, the only way I had of interpreting it was I'm enlightened, because that's what it seemed like at the time. And then it, when it disappeared, you know, you realized you're not enlightened. And then <clears throat> first, after the first year with Lung Po Cha, I wanted, I still had this longing for this, this luminous, selfless, experience. I still remembered it and, and uh, life at Wat Pong was, you know, we were always doing things. You know, so it was, you know, it was a very communal life. We had to all work together and work together and, and it was very, you know, it had just a kind of basic, you had to draw water from wells and sweep the ground and sew your own robes and keep and they had building projects, and so I thought, this is, this is going to, this is interfering with my samadhi practice, because I'm not going to get that state again if I keep having to work like this. So I got permission from Lumpa Cha to go on to the forests. I went to Sukhumakorn to what is known as Pupek Mountain, 
and it's the highest mountain peak in the Pupan range in northeast Thailand. And uh, there's an old Cambodian palace up there, a chedi, something, the ruins of one. It's a beautiful spot that <clears throat> uh, I thought this is ideal. There's nothing, you know. There were two other Thai monks with me, and the three of us, you know, we were kind of, we went Bindabhat together. But uh, during that six months I was there, you know, I was expecting to have this, this experience that I remembered. And, and I got obsessed with it, and I blamed one of the Thai monks for not getting it. He was irritating me. And I got sick, had malaria. Everything went wrong. I had a windstorm, nearly, my kuti nearly was blown off a cliff. Everything seemed to work against me. There's tamacha, natural. This was nature. There's a shortage of water. It had no water on top of this mountain. You had to bring it up with you. So then, you know, I began to take seriously this, oh, this insight practice as observing, rather than trying to get something that I desire, a memory, relive a memory that, that, I, that I had before. You deal with the way it is now. And that's the whole thrust of Lung Po Cha's way of training us. The life, the monastic life, the form, the, the daily schedule, and so forth that they they established at Wat Pong in those days, and rather than seeing it as you know interfering with my samadhi practice, you know I began to observe that what was it wasn't interfering. It was me, you know, thinking, creating this sense of. I don't want to do this, I want, I want to sit and meditate. And so you, you're aware, I, I want something, I don't want it to be like this. I want it to be like I remember, I want something that I remember. And these are ways of reflecting, observing the, the, the sense of a separate self, Sakya Ditti. I want something I don't have, and what I have now I don't want. And in the second noble truth, that's the, that's the whole, you know, when they give those three kinds of desire, dunha, to kind of help us, inform us about the nature of desire. And so we can observe desire rather than just be taken over by our desires, our habits. So in Dhamma, it's perfect, like right now. It's perfect. But in, when I start thinking about right now, 
then I can think, see all kinds of things that aren't perfect. <coughs> Having a cold is imperfect, isn't it? None of us, you know, no, none of us want a cold. And so, <laughs> you know, coughing like that in public, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I just said it was perfect. Well, what I'm pointing at is a mindfulness here and now, not at me and my body and and my coughing and so forth. I'm not. I'm not saying that's perfect. But if you recognize, realize perfection, Dhamma is perfection. It's wholeness, completeness. It's here and now. It's not something you have to get or you don't have. So desire to get Dhamma is, uh, is Dhamma. Desire to get rid of defilements is Dhamma. But that which is aware of defilements and the desire to get Dhamma is the Dhamma, this awareness itself. And it's it's hard to, because you can't objectify, you can't analyze it or find it as an object. You know, it's like trying to believe in God. You know, you people, you know, you, you, in here in the UK, they argue about does God exist or not, and the scientists or rationalist people, atheists, say you can't prove God. You know, it's. Uh, Show me God, you know, bring him here and show me. And so this is, you know, you can't, can't really do that. You know, nobody can prove God, but you can believe, believe in God or disbelieve in God. And those are believing in something you've told about or disbelieving it. Those are the, to extremes. So then, like being raised as a Christian, you know, brought up in a very nice Christian family, you know, in a, as a Buddhist monk, you think, in terms of Dhamma, what is God right now? And it comes out as Dhamma. This is, this is the ultimate reality. And, but, um, but God tends to be a concept that gets anthropomorphized. It takes form like old man, white beard up in the sky. It's like a patriarchal form. Uh, a judgmental father that rewards and punishes us. So this is, this is the problem with, with anthropomorphizing ultimate reality. And Buddha Dhamma has never done that. You know, like Dhamma has no no form, no no quality to it that you can, you know, that you can see, but you can know it because with mindfulness here and now, this awareness, 
and you can't conceive it or create it, but it's like opening, relaxing, letting go, observe, being mindful, aware of the way it is. All conditions changing, so whatever you're feeling now, whatever your mood may be, whatever thoughts or memories are going through your mind, you're aware of it, you know. Every one of you in this room know what you're feeling. And that which knows feeling isn't judging it. It's, it's, feeling is, is like this, it's changing. You know, try to sustain. Sometimes unpleasant feelings seem to never leave because we want them to go. So when we feel depressed or doubting or confused, we want to get rid of it. So that seems to be more permanent than happy feelings, which we want to keep. So we try to hold on to happiness and get rid of unhappiness. But what is it that's aware of this, trying to hold on to happiness and get rid of unhappiness? Is conscious awareness, sati sapachanya, panya, wisdom, And, and the, this is what, you know, so many of us have become interested in Buddhism because it makes no demand for belief. This is, this is the uniqueness of, of uh, the Buddhist teaching. It's not dogmatic. It's, you, don't, you don't have to even believe in Buddha or Dhamma. You know, there's no demand no imperative that you grasp and believe in something that you can't prove, that you can't see for yourself. And so the, the Four Noble Truths, you know, is, is, is not a belief system. It's not about believing. It's observing the Noble Truth of Suffering. Well, that's a work of genius when you, you know, nobody's ever thought of that, except the Buddha. And yet at interfaith conferences, people say Buddhism is, you know, is a humanistic philosophy. It's not a religion because you don't believe in God. And then I've heard Buddhists say, we're atheists, we don't believe in God, things like this. But we're not, you know, Buddhist, Buddha wasn't an atheist or a theist. He was awakened awareness here and now. To not believe in God is a position, is a belief. Because they have no proof that there isn't any. So... So what do you choose? You know, we, we incline to maybe believing or disbelieving. But what is aware of believing, you know, 
or disbelieving. You can be aware of that. Like in, I believe in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a good belief. And believing in God is a good belief if it, if it inspires you to do good and be a, a good citizen, a good person. So it's not about goodness. It's about awakened awareness. So, you know, in, to encourage people to believe in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is, is not wrong. But the real essence of the Buddha's teaching is not about belief, but about investigation. The Four Noble Truths are to be investigated, to be inquired into, to be applied to yourself, to the present moment. One of my favorite, I think you even chant it. Uh, there is the unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned. And if there was not the unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned, there'd be no escape from the born, the formed, the created, the conditioned. But because there is the unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned, there is escape, there is release from the born, the form, the created, the condition. That's one of the teachings that really impressed me right from the beginning of my monastic life. And then you think, we we can imagine the form, the created, the born, the condition, you know, that we can, we can create images, we can create fantasies, uh, that, you know, it's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, emotions, <clears throat> are all born, created, formed, their conditions. And that's what you know, the ignorant, unenlightened being is, uh, is identified with. They're caught in the whirlwind of the uh, cycles of birth and death without realizing what they're doing. But then try to imagine the unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned. Right now, just try to imagine it. Right now, what is the unborn? You can't, there's no image of it, is there? Your thinking mind stops. So that's awareness, you know, that there is the unborn. Because you just witnessed it. And because there is the unborn, there's escape, there's an escape from it. Because you're you the unborn is only recognized through awareness through mindfulness it's not a it's not a theory it's not uh, imagination
the unformed. Try to imagine the unformed, uncreated, unconditioned. So, you know, you might create some kind of it's the cosmic force in the universe, it's the Buddha nature, it's, it's ultimate reality. You might, you know, try to philosophize about it or form kind of metaphysical uh, theories about the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. But notice that they're all negations of the born, the form, the created, the condition. That's the best you can do is is use the prefix unborn, un negates the born. There's what so then you ask yourself like an investigation, what right now, what is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? And I did this testing this out for for years, just just remembering it. This is, there is, there is escape from the born, from the identities with the physical body, with the attachments to emotions, to memories, to ideas and ideals and views and opinions that I might have, or self-doubt, or uh, self-disparagement, guilt, remorse. And then as you begin to open to the unborn, which is just mindfulness here and now, it gives you perspective on the born, the created, the form, the condition. Just like space here in the temple gives you perspective on the forms in it. So it's these kind of teachings that are for investigation. They're not beliefs. You know, they're not, they're not asked to believe them. They challenge, they challenge us with, with the cultural conditioning we have, the assumptions we make about ourselves. And that's what, you know, the Buddhist Buddhist Dhamma does, it challenges ignorance. It's not trying to destroy it or condemn it. It's challenging this not knowing, uh, you know, the Dhamma, believing in things that you can't prove, fears about the future, dreads about the future, hopes about the future, regrets about the past, the whole way that we we create, you know, a whole neurotic syndrome of misery for ourselves through thinking, through holding to sankaras, through identifying with them.
So I just, it's any, you know, this kind of reflection is my way of encouraging you to, to use the, what we've got, you know, we've got really brilliant, you know, tools to use if they're used properly. If they're just grasped or, you know, there's, then you can't expect to have the insight. You know, if we just believe in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and, and then we can't, you know, that's good belief as I was saying, but it's, it won't liberate you till you actually use the Buddha Dhamma Sangha what we call through meditation, like Buddha is really mindfulness. Awakened conscious awareness. And what is the Buddha aware of is Dhamma. And Sangha are those who practice, who cultivate this way, this way of mindfulness. So it's, you know, that means it's you internalize the three refuges in Buddha Dhamma Sangha rather than just believe in some vague idea of Buddha and vague idea of Dhamma and Sangha. Lung Po Cha was always kind of challenging the people in Ubon because they, you know, they... They would see Buddha Rupa as the Buddha, and they say, that's not the Buddha. <laughs> and the Dhamma is the Tripitaka. So they go and bow to the Tripitaka, bind to the Dhamma. And then the Sangha, the monks, the bhikkhus, they bow to the Sangha. Well, that, that's not, I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. I mean, it, these are all, you know, Buddha Rupas are beautiful images, they're symbols of mindfulness, but they don't feel anything. You know, they're made out, this one's made out of copper and brass. The Tripitaka holds the teachings of the Buddha, but it's a book, it's a Sankara. And the bhikkhus, you know, we get old, get sick and die or disrobe. So, so, so in one way, you know, when you put your faith in, in objects called Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, it's still going to be suffering, doubt and disappointment. But when you take the Buddhist teachings and apply them to your own life, to investigate the reality of here and now, then that won't let you down. It's the escape from the born that created the form, the condition. So I'll stop here.